Building major pieces of infrastructure can take years and often decades. And while the day a train line delivers its first passengers or a hospital treats its first patients might signal the end of the project's delivery, it is just the start of the project's next phase, O&M, or operations and maintenance. The role of the O&M team is to make sure that whatever the asset is that they are running, it is operating as well on day one as it is a decade, two decades, or even a century later. For a highway, that might be monitoring road conditions and filling in potholes. For a rail line, it might involve improving passenger flow or maintaining and replacing major assets. But now, O&M contracts are changing and the role of the O&M organisations are becoming more and more complex. It's not just maintaining the assets in working order while keeping costs down that needs to be considered. Asset owners now expect more from an O&M contractor. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Ross McPherson. And I'm Tim Sheehan. A few weeks ago, in episode number 214, delivering a mega project, we learned about the role of delivery partners in assisting asset owners in delivering a piece of major infrastructure. This week, in partnership with Atkins, we are looking at what happens next. After the project is complete and ready to start operating, who takes over and what is their job? We've got uh, roughly 25 different infrastructures that, that we are managing. It goes from power plants in Algeria uh, to commuter train systems here in Canada, to hospitals, courthouses, highways, multitude of uh, different infrastructures. Most of them have been built by SNC-Lavalin at, at one point in time and uh, we've got a contract to maintain them for an extended period of time. Roughly the contracts would range from, from five years to 30 years uh, in some cases. So uh, that's what I do. A team, a great team of about 1,100 people that, that, uh, that make these infrastructure run every single day. Philippe Jean is the Senior Vice President of Operations for O&M at SNC-Lavalin in Canada. He oversees roughly half a billion dollars worth of operations and maintenance contracts, which range across many different industries. The first thing to understand is why an organisation might go out and hire an O&M contractor. Jason Pavey is the Managing Director of Atkins O&M Business in the UK and Europe. You could look at that through a number of lenses. You could outsource it because it's a, a PPP, a public-private partnership, or a PFI type arrangement. Or indeed, it could be that you know, you're looking for more certainty around an outcome-based contract you know, to maintain your client's assets to a certain level. And that might be more advantageous uh, for a client to go out to the sector for organizations that do this day in, day out or indeed they feel it's better placed for that risk and indeed the expertise to be in the uh, operating and maintenance maintainer as opposed to uh, trying to self-deliver. If an organisation has just built a new piece of infrastructure, for example a train line, 
They may be a small organization that has received help from a delivery partner to complete the project. Now that they're done, rather than creating a new team from scratch to operate the rail line, it can make a lot more sense to bring in an external organization with years of experience operating and maintaining rail lines to do the job for you. And while 15 or 20 years ago, simply ensuring the asset remains in working order would have been all that was expected of an O&M contractor, that is now changing. This is in part a result of how the public-private partnership, or 3P model, has been revised since it was first developed in the 1990s. I would say that the contracts themselves are, are, are becoming more complicated in a, in a sense that, that when, when the 3P market opened, uh, the contracts, I wouldn't say were, are, are, are loose, are, are kind of loose, but, but you had a little bit more wiggling room in, in the contracts. And, and, but now um, there's a whole business around managing the, these, these 3P contracts, and there's consultants that are simply looking at, at, at applying the contract uh, to the letter, and, and that puts a lot of pressure on the team. And, and it can actually derail the project if, if, if you don't get that partnership going. And uh, 3P is, is a public-private partnership. And, and, and the third P, that partnership, is, is very important. When you do have a client that wants to work with you, and, and it's always a, a question of give and take, uh, we're ready to give and it, <laughs> we're to give if, if, if we can get a little bit something in return. Uh, but w when you do establish that real partnership and understand the client and the client understands you, that, that's, the, that's the best case. Working with public bodies means making sure the roles and responsibilities of the O&M contractor need to be clearly laid out. We're there to maintain what we've been given. So, so the scope is, is, is pretty clear that, that we've, got, we've got a particular infrastructure and... and and we're there to maintain it. Anything, anything that starts going outside of the infrastructure, addition to the infrastructure, uh, it needs to be clearly spelled out that it's, it's the responsibility of, um, of your client. But now asset owners, particularly public asset owners, want more from the O&M contractors. One of the biggest things that O&M contractors have to consider is the impact of climate change on an asset. I think that some of the challenges of being an operations maintenance provider are, you know, dealing with what will, what will inevitably be climate change over the next 10, 15, 20 years. You know, how do we make sure the assets uh, are maintained for that level of service? And indeed, what level of service do people need from an asset going forward? Um, as I say, you know, people's perceptions and users of those assets change. Rather than just being measured against the cost of maintenance and the performance of the asset, now O&M managers must also look at an asset's emissions and its overall climate resiliency. Right now, everybody's talking about global warming, about uh, about uh, carbon emissions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we're not we're no different. Of course, our contracts, some of our contracts, they many many years and right now the client wants to move in that direction so so we need to come up with uh, with amendments and, and proposals in order to to uh, to optimize the operations and reduce our carbon footprint i'll give you an example 
we've got a highway here in, in Canada called Brunway. It's a 250 kilometer stretch of highway, four lane highway with, uh, with uh, I guess, exits and entries and, uh, and overpasses, etc. Well, we're in charge of maintaining all of this. And uh, well, to do that, we've got a fleet of trucks uh, and we need to plow the snow and we need to cut the grass and we need to pick up the dead animals and we need to patrol the highway in order to, 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 to make sure it's safe, et cetera, et cetera. We're working with, uh, with the fleet management um, team here in Canada in order to, to look at, and we go electric, uh, electric pickup trucks and uh, electric plow trucks, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, so these are things we're, we're looking at because it's, it's just the right thing to do. It's not a request from, from the client, but we think that it's something we should do and, and make, may make a difference later when, when new contracts come, come along and, and we, can, we can say, listen, we do it differently. We do it cleanly and, and here's how we do it. And, and maybe, maybe that wins us additional contracts because that's where we need to go. We don't have a choice, right? But making a complex asset more environmentally friendly is not as simple as getting electric vehicles. To understand how to best decarbonize an asset, first you need to understand where the carbon emissions are coming from and what is the quickest and most cost-effective way to decarbonize. The opportunities are really to bring the operations and maintenance, the more traditional services that we deliver, both you know, across the sectors currently in the UK, but also from North America and globally, and, and really bring that together with Atkins expertise around climate change, decarbonomics, with regard to asset management planning, you know, particularly around how do we squeeze, you know, every penny out of our assets on behalf of our clients to make that as efficient as possible? How do we make that pound go further? And for us, you know, I think the real opportunity um, and what we want to bring into the sector to a much greater extent is how we combine those into a holistic offer you know, that brings asset management, it brings digital, it brings climate and decarbonomics together into a sort of intelligent operations and maintenance delivery. To squeeze every penny out of an asset, you don't want to replace it or any component too early. And to get a better understanding of their assets, Atkins are harnessing the vast amounts of data that is being collected, but not necessarily used. We're utilising data, data analytics, you know, the, uh, the terabytes of data that probably isn't being used at the moment. How do we better harness that to make sure we're making the right decisions at the right time and really optimising spend on the network? So for us, if we can, we can optimise the life cycle, meaning that if the roof needs... Uh, theoretically to be changed every every 15 years well if we can stretch it out to, to 20 years for example uh, there, there's and and maybe avoid one cycle of replacement then uh, because we've got a clever way of doing it through modeling through through additional maintenance etc etc or through engineering then that pos that helps us on the next bid where where we can be uh, i guess more competitive than our competition because we found a way of doing it while a roof might be a simple example with enough data collected an entire asset like a rail line can be modeled and presented digitally giving the onm team incredibly detailed insight into an asset's performance 
SNC-Lavalin already has a full-scale digital twin of the Canada line in Vancouver. You can hear all about that project in episode 185, Building Canada Line's Digital Twin. But the Canada Line is not the only asset they are trying to create digital twins for. Of course, we're, we're pushing for, for digital twins. Canada Line is, is working it. We've got uh, Trillium also, which is a project that's, uh, that's going to be online uh, this year, maybe beginning of next year. Because for, for commuter, tra commuter train systems, uh, you only have four hours every night in order to do your maintenance, your repairs, et cetera, et cetera. So we need to be as, as, as efficient as possible during those four hours. So uh, stuff like digital twins and being able to, to, to see ahead of time if, if something <laughs> works or, or simulate, uh, simulate a repair so that we're more efficient during those four hours is, is key for us. Unlike the Canada line, which was already fully built and operational when work began on creating a digital twin, SNC-Lavalin are also involved in the design and construction of the Trillium line extension to Ottawa's light rail network. This means the use of BIM, building information modelling, along with VR and AR, are being utilised during the design process. Designers can enter stations and get a full-scale impression of the design before construction even begins. And having the same organisation being responsible for the design and construction process, as well as being the O&M contractor, can bring advantages. I think it's easier when it's SNC on the other side. I think you're, it's, it's, we're one SNC, it's, a, it's one share price, so... So when there's, a, um, when there's a conflict about who's responsible for what, I think it's easier within SNC because we can resolve it. It's within, within SNC and, and we know that, that it's not going to go anywhere and we can resolve it. But constructors, once, once, once a project is done, they want out of the project. And, and typically uh, they, they want out and, and they, they, they're, they're, there's, a, there's a push towards operations and maintenance to take it over. And when a company can design, construct and operate an asset, they can gather even more data and use it to further optimize performance. We can build stuff, we can design stuff. And, and then when we operate and maintain, there's a feedback loop that, that can happen and that, that we can, the whole company can benefit from that and, and from the experience of running these types of, of, of buildings and infrastructures. And, uh, and I think that can benefit engineering, which when the engineering, they're engineering better, better infrastructures, then that comes over to us eventually. And, and we can, we can opt also optimize the way we operate and maintain. But it's not just train lines that benefit from technologies like digital twins. Other assets already produce huge amounts of data, which isn't being utilized effectively. So you know, that's somewhat easier, I think, on a uh, closed network of a, of a in, in the rail industry. But is that transferable to roads? Is it transferable into the water industry and elsewhere? A absolutely. So we're certainly, uh, from a Atkins UK perspective, we've been working with a number of highway authorities where you know, we have been developing and delivering digital twin for roads. You know, and moving more to asset management as a service. And I think we'll see that increasing over time. And, and what that means in reality is you know, to create a digital twin of the network from an asset management perspective. So not from 
not a BIM model for just a particular project or scheme, but a holistic digital twin of a network and, and a road network in this example, that you know you can really capture, analyze data and, and start to filter and prioritize and take a risk-based approach to uh, asset management. Convincing asset owners to harness the data they are collecting and building digital twins is not always easy. But as these tools have been developed and put into use, they have proven to be value for money. I, I think our approach right now is that uh, we're, we're going to build it for us, for ourselves. The goal is, is to prove that it works and it's a useful tool and that we can generate economies and, and maybe we don't need the client. And, and uh, when I say that, it's uh, maybe just just the savings that we can generate as operations and maintenance are, are more than sufficient to, to justify building such, uh, such a, a tool. Although the role of an O&M contractor can vary wildly from project to project and sector to sector, Jason sees many similarities around how major assets can utilize data and technology. So, you know, a facilities management contract for, for property around decarbonizing is very different to uh, running a railway or um, uh, um, a, a piece of a uh, hydro plant, for example. But there are cross-cutting themes, and I think you know they're really important for us to capture. So, you know, data analytics, um, AI, you know, the ability for us to um, make informed decisions, the appropriateness of how we capture data and process it do transcend across those different industries and decarbonizing some of a, uh, a client's property portfolio, for example, you know, while that sounds very different to say decarbonizing a railway, there are some underlying uh, principles um, that can be uh, transformed from one to the other. And Jason says the success of already existing digital twins, like that of the Canada line, has been a useful tool for demonstrating their potential value. I think there's an opportunity for us to work with our clients in the UK and the, to continue to explore the true benefits of utilising digital and more data. And, and I think we can do that by a number of ways. So, you know, where, where are those exemplar projects? You know, I've mentioned Canada Line, for example, in Vancouver on the, in the rail sector, but how do we get our clients excited by that? So from a Atkins perspective, you know, where we have assets with long-term uh, contracts, you know, we are investing as an organization in greater degrees of data analytics, automation, AI, and um, other tools and enterprise asset management systems, because actually it's the right thing to do. I think where we're working more hand in hand with our clients for their own assets in, in slightly different arrangements, then I think for me, it's about just sharing you know, the value, uh, being open and transparent. But there's a long way to go. So, you know, value for money can mean lots of things to different clients, to different people. You know, is it lowest price? Is it best service? Is it a sustainable approach, including carbon, as well as customer service and uh, social cohesion, et cetera. So how do you measure it and how do you value the worth of it? Um, I think is key, but you know, I think it's for organizations like Atkins to help decode that for our clients 
and, and particularly just show the great examples of benefits that they can get received. To achieve the best outcomes, it is crucial to have an understanding of what each client wants from its O&M contractor. And that's not as simple as laying out responsibilities in a contract. It requires communication and collaboration between the two parties. I would always advocate working collaboratively with, uh, with clients and partners because this is, you know, supply chain is so important to any solution. So, you know, how do you, how do you get your, uh, your client and supply chain working together around in driving innovation and improvement? I've seen some great examples of co-creation, you know, piloting, shared risk. Atkins would invest in the right opportunities in order to um, demonstrate to clients where we feel, you know, we can really add value. Equally, we've done joint investments and joint risk and pain share with uh, with our clients, uh, where actually we're all in it together and we're all looking to achieve a, a solution. So if you've got a forward-thinking O&M contractor, you've got a forward-thinking client, and you can start to wrap that vision of where you want to move to, I think the art of the possible becomes so much easier. And as I say then, for me, co-creation, you know, making sure that all parties have are involved and invested in making it happen, you get much better results. And we've seen that on a number of contracts uh, here in the UK, uh, where we've both jointly invested to develop a solution in conjunction with our clients. And, and it means that our clients, you know, can bring their skill set, their experience to bear, uh, as well as uh, the private sector as well. Another new area that O&M contracts are placing more importance on is social value. So certainly, you know, social value and the wider benefits of operations and maintenance and other forms of contract, you know, and the benefit they can bring to local communities and the value they can add, I think is being more and more recognised by our clients linked to the Social Value Act. But it goes much beyond that. The Social Value Act was passed in the UK in 2012. It requires that all public bodies factor in the impact on the social and economic well-being of the local area in their commission and procurement process. But social value can be hard to measure and it can be difficult to make sure the right incentives are in place for an O&M contractor to deliver on providing extra social value. I guess the challenge is how do you set the contract up that both encourages it and rewards it? And I don't necessarily just mean rewarding financially. This isn't necessarily a, um, you know, just a financial um, token, but it is perhaps about how you link that to extend contracts to a, a different, to, to a different and a longer duration, based on performance. I think that then gives you uh, leverage and, and justification to then go on and start to innovate. But it also uh, starts to strengthen things like social value and the outcomes that you can deliver for each of those individual contracts. Having global expertise and being able to utilise the best knowledge and technology available anywhere in the world is all well and good when it comes to operating and maintaining an asset cost efficiently while also driving down emissions. But to provide real social value to the local community, that requires local expertise. I think the balance of global reach and local delivery is absolutely essential so particularly from an operations and maintenance perspective 
you need people on the ground you know, who understand the asset that can engage with the client, you know, strong communication skills, you know, can really understand uh, and be responsive for the particular asset locally. From an efficiency perspective, you know, it doesn't make sense to go and bring huge teams across the world to go and deliver particular projects. But what it does make sense is for us to bring the knowledge and seed the great ideas from wherever they may be and then bring that to bear for a particular client in a particular region. So I think it is that global reach and connectivity, but centered on you know a local regional team that can really lean in and work closely with uh, each individual client. From individual assets as small as a courthouse to networks as large as a train line, Massive environmental and financial gains can be made by utilising the vast amounts of data today available to us. And being cost effective and reducing emissions are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they go hand in hand. Whether it's making a building more energy efficient or not replacing assets too early, or even making an asset more resilient to the impact of climate change, they may have a high upfront cost, but in the long run, they will save an asset owner money. O&M organisations need to be ahead of the curve, investing in and testing out new technologies. Asset owners are waking up to the importance of decarbonising and providing local communities with the economic and social benefits that come with major infrastructure projects. But O&M contractors can still take it upon themselves to invest in digital twins, create net zero plans and provide communities with social value and not just as Jason said. Because actually it's the right thing to do. But also because, as Philippe put it, we can generate economies and, and maybe we don't need the client in there. And, uh, when I say that, it's, uh, it's that, it, that maybe just, just the savings that we can generate as operations and maintenance are, are more than sufficient to, to justify building such uh, a tool. Engineering Matters is a production of Breeby Media. This episode was written and produced by Johnny Dowling and hosted by me, Ross McPherson, and Tim Sheehan. Editing and series supervision by John Young. Sound engineering by me, Ross McPherson. And the man who operates and maintains our production is Rory Harris. Thanks to our partner for this episode, Atkins, a member of the SNC Lavaline Group. And thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, and on Instagram. Mm-hmm.